We are in the final week of our series looking at 1 Corinthians. And uh, for those who've been with us, if you've been with us on or off, uh, then you will uh, be familiar with this. If you are a guest, then allow me to introduce the series by telling you it's the last week. And we're looking at this letter. It's actually the second letter that St. Paul wrote to a church in uh, difficult to put exactly uh, different countries on it, but uh, what is now the kind of region of Turkey and Greece, that area of the Mediterranean, the Middle East, and North Africa. But Paul did a lot of his work here. He basically travelled around the Mediterranean Sea, uh, planting churches, that means beginning new churches, and caring for them and sharing what he thought God was saying to them. And he wrote uh, four letters to the church in Corinth, and we have two of them. Uh, the two that deal with the really big stuff that the church kept uh, to remember what Paul had said. And we've been working our way through this letter. We're coming to the end of it now. It's always slightly strange to look at the end of a letter. I don't know if you've ever done that. Uh, but the last two paragraphs of the letter are almost entirely unimportant. Uh, I've been writing thank you letters for my birthday cards and my birthday presents this week. And uh, if you get to the final uh, paragraph of the letter, there's usually some sort of pleasantry about how I hope to see all these people again soon. And a pledge of love and affection and then my name. If you get a thank you card or a birthday card from my daughter, it will have crudely drawn hearts all over it. So there you go, that's an added bonus. And you read these letters, and the meat of the letter is elsewhere, so you sort of gloss over the end. Uh, because the really important stuff we think is in the middle, the beginning and the end, are just pleasantries. And we come a bit blase about it. And actually, as you read St. Paul's letters, it's very easy to do that. It's very easy to read the, the nine or ten letters that we have from St. Paul in uh, the New Testament, and uh, go through the kind of amazing teaching, the philosophy, the ethics, the theology that transformed the world. That's what Paul's letters are made up of. And then arrive at the end of the letter, and there's a chapter of greetings. So he's like, yeah, remember Rob, remember Jim, remember Jane. Bill sends his greetings. And you get to the end, it's a bit of an anti-climax, because you've gone through all this stuff, it's world-changing teaching. And you get to the end, and he's saying, oh, by the way, there's one of them where he actually says, send me a coat. You're like, oh, thanks. <laughs> Lists of, uh, of greetings for different people, travel arrangements. It can be tempting to glance at the final chapter of the letter and write it off, because it doesn't seem to be dealing with the big ideas. You know, Paul in his letters dealt with pride and ambition, idolatry and prophecy, the resurrection of Jesus, the future hope of the entire world, and then he gets to the end and says, by the way, my friends Priscilla and Aquila say hi. And you think, well, what's there to be gained from this? And I confess that I have often quietly shared that attitude. I think a lot of biblical scholars have. Uh, I have a friend who uh, said that when he studied theology at Cambridge, one of his lecturers walked in and said, I'm one of those people who believes that the end of Romans, Romans 16, which is taken up entirely with uh, this person says hi, this person says hi, this person says hi, is as important as the rest of the letter, which deal with the biggest ideas in human history, the most influential letter written in human history. And this guy, this lecturer came and stood up and said, I think the bit where he says hi from Phoebe is as important as the rest. 
And he attempted to sit there, and my friend is very open about this. He says he sat there in his lectures as an undergraduate and thought to himself, this guy's off his head. What does he mean? Hi from Phoebe. He's as important as by grace you think so. And yet, actually, 1 Corinthians 16 is as important, if not more important, than anything else in the letter. Because it asks a really, really fundamental question. Perhaps the most fundamental question we can ask after, is Jesus alive? Did Jesus come back from the dead? And it's this, how should what we believe affect the way we behave? There really isn't any more important question than that. How should what we believe affect the way that we behave? And we've worked through some serious thinking. As I've uh, taken you through this series uh, this year, we've argued for the centrality of Jesus in everything, but in the end, everything is about Jesus. We've argued that Paul shows us how Jesus means that we should live lives of humility and love. I've argued for an understanding of Christian life as a mission empowered by God's Spirit and made certain by Jesus' resurrection. And yet all of that is worth nothing if it doesn't change how we live. All of that is worth nothing if it doesn't change how we live. It doesn't matter what you believe if it doesn't change how you behave. Paul's answer, unsurprisingly, is we should behave differently. Here's my lunchtime summary. This is the quote that you can give at your dinner table or your lunch table if you are asked. What was it you learned about this morning? Right belief should lead us to right actions. Believing in Jesus should lead us to behave like Jesus. Right belief should lead to right actions. Believing in Jesus should lead us to behave like Jesus. Right belief should lead to right actions. Believing in Jesus should lead to behaving like Jesus. We're going to read the passage now. So, here's 1 Corinthians 16. If you can read it in a paper Bible, I encourage you to do so. If you've got your own Bible and you want to bring it along, that's a really good thing to do. Uh, I'm going to put the words on the screen because I know that some people struggle to hold Bibles, they're quite cumbersome. Uh, but I do encourage you to read on paper, I'm going to read. So Paul writes, Now, about the collection for the Lord's people. Do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up, so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. Then, when I arrive, I will give you letters of introduction to the I will give letters of introduction to the men you approve, and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable for me to go also, they will accompany me. After I go through Macedonia, I will come to you. I will be going through Macedonia. Perhaps I will stay with you for a while, or even spend the winter, so you can help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now and make only a passing visit. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. But I will stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost, because a great door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many who oppose me. When Timothy comes, see to it that he has nothing to fear while he's working with you. 
for he is carrying on the work of the Lord, just as I am. No one then should treat him with contempt. Send him on his way in peace, so that he may return to me. I'm expecting him along with the brothers. Now about our brother Apollos. I strongly urged him to go to you with the brothers. He was quite unwilling to go now, but he will go when he has the opportunity. Be on your guard. Stand firm in the faith. Be courageous. Be strong. Do everything in love. You know the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Caia, and they have devoted themselves to the service of the Lord's people. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to submit to such people and to everyone who joins in the work and labours at it. I was glad that Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus arrived, because they have supplied what was lacking from you. But they refreshed my spirit and yours also. Such men deserve recognition. The churches in the province of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla greet you warmly in the Lord, and so does the church that meets at their house. All the brothers and sisters here send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. If anyone does not love the Lord, let that person be cursed. Come, Lord. My love to all of you in Christ Jesus. Amen. Do you see what I mean though? There's a lot of Priscilla and Aquila greet you, and Timothy's coming next year, make sure someone welcomes him here. But I want to think through actually what is Paul saying? It's good that it's so practical, it's good that it consists of instructions about practically what you should do when this person turns up to the church and how you should count the money. And uh, where Paul is now and the conversation he had with Paulus, because it's showing that Paul regards all of the teaching he's given as changing their real, ordinary lives. It's not like some kind of philosophy class that you go to to hear the guy in the Batman conference talk about on, on Sunday mornings. It, this is stuff that changes our lives. And Paul actually has four areas in which he says the resurrection of Jesus, the life that he showed us, should change the way we live. The first is in verses 1 to 4. Be generous. Be generous. Everything we've learned about Christ and his way of living should lead us as Christians to care for the poor. This is Paul's point in verses 1 to 4. The Christians in Jerusalem, to give you some context, had no money and no food. They had no money to buy food and no food of their own. There was, at this time, variously famines across the Middle East and North Africa. It wasn't massively different from now, except there weren't modern supply chains to try and relieve them. And the Christians in Jerusalem had no money, and so Paul was going around the churches that he'd started in all of the different places around the Mediterranean, saying, in Israel there's a famine, there's no food and these people have no money, and so we're going to collect some money for them, and then several of us are going to take the money to Jerusalem, and it will be distributed amongst the poor. And he's saying that the effect of everything he had taught the Corinthians, the climax of his letter, everything he's been saying up to now, leads to this idea, collect money and give it to the poor. Everything he has learned, everything we have learned about the grace of God, about the humility of Jesus Christ, about preferring to be served 
rather to serve rather than to be served, about valuing those who have different gifts, about the power of Jesus' resurrection, everything he has taught them should lead them to caring for those who don't have anything. It's not scientifically some kind of patronising donation. And it's not a guilt trip. He's not sitting there, this isn't the kind of uh, ancient version of a fundraising drive amongst rich Westerners to care for the, the kind of poor needy of either the West or the rest of the world. You know, that kind of patronising idea that you pat people on the head and say, well done, here's a handout, and then we'll go on with our lives. It's not that idea at all. It's born out of two convictions that Paul has spent all of his time laying for them. One, that God gives us more than we need. That God is a God of grace. That he overflows with abundance towards us. That we are richly blessed in Jesus. And secondly, that because God blesses us, we are therefore obliged to support others. It's not in a sense a choice, it's a duty, a moral duty that comes from being blessed by God is that you are under a duty, we are under a duty to bless others. Jesus put it this way, he said, freely you have received, now freely give. Caring for the poor, brothers and sisters, is not an option. It's not something we tack on to the end because we feel nice out of worship. It's not actually a collection plate that we pass around and you put in something because it's the done thing to do. It is part of what it means to be Jesus in the world. It's at the centre of what it means to live as the people of God. In Galatians, Paul refers to doing what he told the Galatian churches to do. If you read Paul's letter to the church in Galatia, which is another church in the Mediterranean, Paul had all sorts of problems with this church. And they had a letter from him, it's a brilliant letter, much shorter than Corinthians. I, I commend it to you, you could go away and read it tonight. And Paul says, he tells something of his own story in this letter. He tells something of his own story. And the story he tells is of a time when he was training to be an apostle. So he'd been teaching and planting churches. Planting churches, I've been told, is not what no one knows what this means. It's what we, it's the language you use for starting a new church. It's kind of that image of you put a seed in the ground and care for it and nurture it and it grows to be strong. And it then produces seeds that can go into the ground. See, so you plant churches, they grow and they plant other churches. It's quite a nice language. He, Paul was a church planter. It's part of what it means to be an apostle. He was a church planter. He started churches and then supervised them. And he had started all of these churches, and eventually the other apostles, Peter and James, who was Jesus' brother, and the others were the kind of big wigs, the large from large, in um, spread for you there. Keep up. Thank you. I don't know whether you're laughing because I told you you should laugh, or whether you're laughing because you genuinely get it. I can't tell. But either way, it made me feel better, so thank you. The kind of large Ramaj in Jerusalem, they, they, uh, they got Paul together and they said, just, just, we're a little bit worried, Paul, because no offence, but you used to murder Christians, right? Some questions have been asked. What's going on in these other churches? You know, none, none of them are Jewish, what's the deal? And 
Paul came and he says, he says in uh, Galatians 2 verse 9 and 10, he says, I, I explained my doctrine to them and they were happy. I'm paraphrasing, they were happy like, to commend me, right? They actually went with him at times. They thought it was brilliant. They checked out his doctrine, right belief, and they said, he said, the only thing they insisted that I teach everywhere is that we remember the Paul. Let me put it this way. For St. Peter and St. James and St. Paul, you know, the, the, the big heroes of early Christianity, caring for the poor was as important to them as making sure you were right about Jesus' resurrection. It's not an option. If you want to know the first thing we should learn to do when we follow Jesus, it is to give money to care for others. The first thing one needs to learn when we follow Jesus is to give money to care for others. Our first obligation actually is to care for each other as Christians. So we are in a spiritual family together. We are brothers and sisters because we relate to Jesus. We have a particular bond with people in this church and with Christians around the world. We have a responsibility to care for one another. Paul here is specifically taking up a collection for the church in Jerusalem. It's your responsibility to support this church because it's part of God's kingdom in Hershey. But it extends wider than that. As followers of Jesus, we ought to be good news for the poor everywhere, from whatever creed, whatever colour, whatever tribe or tongue, whether someone is of our faith or a different one or none at all, the Church of Jesus Christ should be good news for that people. Because we care for the poor. But it's not like I'm labouring it, it's because this is the one thing that Paul was commended. And when he comes to apply the letter, this is what he says. The first thing he says, in his kind of application chapter, is remember to set aside money to care for those who don't have any money. So that's the first thing Paul says. The second thing he says is that, uh, this is in verses 5 to 12, if you're following along with 19 to 20. I'm summarising, by the way, the big idea behind the things he's saying. So you won't find him actually spelling this out as teaching. What he does is he applies it to particular situations. I've gone through and sat down and pondered it and prayed about it and said, God, what's the big idea behind these parables? Why is he saying this? What is it he's trying to apply? And in verses 5 to 12 and 19 to 20, I think the big idea is that the teaching we receive, what we believe about Jesus, should lead us to be family. So the first thing is to be generous, the second is to be family. In these verses Paul refers to loads of different places he's starting new churches. You know, he's been to Galatia, he's been to Ephesus, different cities around this area. He refers to different leaders who've encouraged him from the Corinthian church. He's got that as a, uh, the language of Stephanus, Fortunatus and Achaia. If you're looking for a tip, by the way, on how to pronounce ancient names, here's my insight for you. Nobody has a Scooby-Doo how they were pronounced. Right? I don't speak Latin. I certainly don't speak it with an Italian accent from 2,000 years ago. I don't speak ancient Greek a little bit, but not out loud. And none of you do either. So just bluffing. If you're ever asked to read something from the Bible in public and you come across like some weird name, just be confident. 
There's no one sitting there thinking, oh gosh, he or she's definitely got that wrong. If you've got Bible scholar in the thing, they'll probably think, oh, I'm going to write a paper about that. I wonder if that's a new way of pronouncing it. <laughs> Just go for it. The Priscilla and Aquila come up. He's talking about all these different church leaders from all around this area, different churches that this church is supporting. Sending them greetings and affection and support from the churches in Asia. The big idea is that Christians are not meant to be alone and nor are churches. Be family. Be generous, be family. Part of the message of 1 Corinthians, part of the big idea, is that we need each other. Actually, that undercurs almost, I'm going to spend some time recapping little bits of what we've taught this year, what we've learned this year. Paul's talked about factions and rivalries in the church, about why asserting your prideful right to rule over someone else is not a good way of living like Jesus. He's talked about spiritual gifts and he said, look, not all of you are the same and that's good. You need one another. We need one another. Part of the big idea of 1 Corinthians is this point. My gifts are not sufficient for the work of God, and nor are yours. I cannot come, become like Jesus on my own, and nor can you. I need you, and you need me. And we need other churches. We're family. In the West, this is, we live in a strange, strange time, I think. And it's partly a result of uh, three or four hundred years of Western thought and how it's developed, partly a result of economic development, but a lot of Western society is now focused on the individual. And there's good, there's good things that come out of that. But it's good that people don't just get subsumed into groups. But there is a problem with it as well. Right? Which is that it's not all about me, me, me. A lot of the time it's about we, we, we. <coughs> we can't simply ignore one another because we need one another. It's built into the fabric of humanity. In the Genesis stories, they're, they're designed to teach eternal truths about human, how human, human beings are. When it says it's not good for man to be alone and therefore God has made woman, he's not simply talking about procreation, he's talking about society. That human beings are designed to be in relationship with one another. And Christians, as a new humanity, as people who are being made new through faith in Jesus, are designed to be together, to work together, to love together, to cry together. Occasionally to fight together. We're designed to be family. It extends past individual relationships to churches. Churches should not try to exist on their own. Churches that try to exist on their own and don't have deep relationships with other churches become weird and nutty and ineffective. To use deep theological language. Well, just like hermits become weird and nutty and ineffective. Churches need to be in relationship with one another. They need to encourage one another. They need to worship together. 
They need to provide support for one another, share teaching and wisdom and challenge and sometimes correction. Because, you know, Lord knows I need correction. There will be times, and there have been times, where I've needed someone to come alongside me and say, Phil, what's going on in Hershey's great, we love you guys, but have you thought about this? Not sure that's great. Or you maybe need to think about this as you go forward. This is a challenge to each one of us as individuals to build relationships with one another, to commit to meeting together, to commit to asking each other hard and loving questions. Do you know why toddlers get angry with their parents? This is very close to my heart. Children are grumpy with their parents and not with other people. Very often, right? Anybody who's been a parent here, you will recognise this. If you've not been a parent, you might think, all oh, children are angels around me, I can't understand why everyone says it's so difficult. <laughs> Let me give you some insight. Okay, at home, they can be monsters. Lovely monsters, you love them dearly, but they can be monsters. At times. The reason they do that is because in a family you feel safe. To express your anxiety and your frustration around them. When you're with somebody who you're constantly worried about whether they are still going to be here tomorrow, you cannot express how you truly feel. You can't let your, let your guard down. You can't let your frustrations with the world out. You can't express yourself. That's why children behave better for other people. And then when they get back, you know, you, the classmates. You send your kids off to the grandparents for a weekend. How's it been, mum and dad? Oh, baby, you're wonderful. <laughs> oh, we went out to a soft play. We had six ice cream dogs. I did you that kid. Followed by McDonald's, and then we watched three films in the afternoon. And it was a great day. They got one. I'm sure it was. And you get them home, and then the next day you have three or four tantrums. Particularly the other two. It happens, okay? Why? Because they're not sure about grandma and grandpa sometimes. They know they need to impress them. Families, close families, are places of safety. Places of safety. Places where hard questions can be asked. Because you know the other person's not going to walk out. I, uh, for those of you keeping track of my social reading habits, I've finished the Herc and Warren books. They're very good. I commend that practice to you. Reading every Herc and Warren book in chronological order took me about nine months. I uh, loved it. I've now finished that with Joseph Miss Marvel. And uh, Miss Marple, in uh, well, the book that I just finished this morning, actually, uh, The Body in the Library, there's a, there's a part where two characters, while well, telling everybody that they're not married, they're living together, because it's the set in the 1930s, it's much more scandalous than it is now. They're telling everyone they live together because they enjoy the look on everybody's faces. Miss Marple comes along at one point and says, um, You know, my dear. To the, to the girl who thinks she's just a uh, busybody old woman who's butting in. Miss Marple knows that one of them's about to be arrested. She comes along and she says to them, uh, You know, my dear, I really would start wearing a wedding ring and uh, stop pretending that you're not married because you're going to need goodwill for people in the village because your husband's about to be arrested. <laughs> right. She says, How on earth did you know that we were married? She says, The way you fight. <laughs> Well, it gets around. You fight differently when you're married than when you're not married because there's something, this is Miss Marvel's I think it's wise, so I'm referring to you. There's something different about the way you fight when you are convinced that the other person is legally obliged to stay with you than there is when they might leave at any time. Right? Because you feel safe. 
As Christians, we should be family. There should be places that we need to make ourselves vulnerable to one another, to ask hard questions. How are you doing? How is it with your soul? That's what we ask about. Places where you can open up and say, actually, I'm really struggling this week. I haven't read my Bible for two weeks, and I'm really struggling, and there are some days where I just don't know how I'm going to keep it up. Places where you can say, actually, I've been really encouraged this week because I've been reading my Bible, and it's been just so encouraging for me, but I'm really struggling with this. <coughs> you know, my uncle was ill. But even for me, I'll be going with this. I value life group and I and I dread it a little bit at the same time. Because I get asked the question. I get asked the question, how's it with your soul If I haven't deliberately run the group down so there's no time for me to answer it. No, and I have to say, last week was really difficult for me. You know, Jill died, I was very close to Jill, I spent a lot of time with her. It was very sudden. It was a really hard week. There need to be places where people can ask us these questions. We are family. We need each other. Where somebody can feel safe to cry. Where they can feel safe to be angry. Um, the idea gets around sometimes when we go off these stuff. It's unholy to be angry with God. Come across this idea. Maybe just sat, there's something illicit about it. I'm really, really angry. And I don't know how to do that prayer. I feel like when I pray, I should come in and put my sunny face on the dust. Actually, um, I don't want to be harsh, but that's profoundly unbiblical and dangerous to both your mental and spiritual health. So I guess I have to be harsh. The Psalms are full of people who are furious. Furious with God. But in the way that you have me furious with someone who you know will never live. They're furious with God in the way the head of the sun furious with me. She knows I'm in for the long haul. I signed a contract, I made a vow. So she can say, you know what, I'm free And then we love our way through it. If you're somebody who feels really angry with God, the worst thing you can do is hide it from him. Just like in a marriage, the worst thing you can do is hide it from your partner. Or if you have a really close friendship with your friend. I'm going on peace now, though. It's a challenge for us as individuals to build relationships with one another, to get to know one another, to commit to meeting together, from asking hard and loving questions, to weeping and laughing together. It's a challenge for us as a church. It's, there's some amazing advantages to being a Baptist church, right? I get to, I don't have to wear a dress. Wonderful. Love that. Love my brothers and sisters who do wear dresses. Good for them. It's a real blessing to me that I don't have to. We get to sing what we like, we get to do what we like, no one checks it. But there is a risk, right, which is that we don't build those relationships with other churches that allow us to encourage one another, to worship together, to, to, to do more. We need to develop deeper relationships with other churches, to have ambitions that extend beyond Persian, to look for people we can support and love and challenge, and to receive that support and love and challenge from them as well. Actually, this is, I was asked the question, what's the deal with this new ground thing you keep talking about? That's why we're doing it. Right? This part of 1 Corinthians is, is one of the reasons why we're exploring forming relationships with other churches who are like us, where we can worship in big groups, where we can do stuff together. 
where we can be challenged by them and where we can challenge them and supported by them and support them. You know, I can't tell you how encouraging I've found the past month, worshipping with men and women from different places, races, nationalities and churches. Those prayer days I was telling you about, where Heather and I went down to Sitka a few weeks ago, we were praying for new churches that we are now involved with, Persian Baptist Church is now involved with, in Italy, in France, in Belgium, in Scotland, in Germany, in Holland, in England. There's something bigger. It's great to love our village, but there is more in the world than just Persian. It was great to receive advice and counsel about our church and be able to advise others about theirs. Last week, Liz was telling us how through the ministry of someone from a wider network of churches, she encountered the Holy Spirit in a new way. I know this can seem a little wild and distant, but my point is that if we want to follow Jesus, we should be family. Finally, we should focus on personal relationships. We should focus on personal relationships. Paul drills down to each one of our lives and challenges us to keep on going. Verse 13, be on your guard. Stand firm. <coughs> oh, I had a picture of I'll show you pictures because I always like money. There's one for money. Look at that. Care for the poor and stuff grocery. Be family because you can do more together. Yeah, this is one of my favourite pictures of all time. That's uh, 100 points, everybody can name all of them. I can do three off the top of my head. That's uh, Ronaldini on the left as we look at it. Pack out on the second left. Uh, Roberto Carlos two further over. This was the Brazil team from 2002. They just won the They can do more together. They found a group and supported one another in their faith and won the World Cup. I'm not saying they won the World Cup because they're Christians. That's not how it works, unfortunately. And I'd love to win the World Cup. My point is for them, they found the strength to go into the biggest TV spectacle in the world and announce that Jesus loves them. What was that? Six different languages? Yeah. Together. Because they were family. Actually, there's a picture I don't have for you here, which is of them on kneeling around the centre circle before the World Cup. They held up the World Cup final. They held up the World Cup final in Brazil team because they kneeled around the centre circle and prayed together. What a wonderful picture of family. What a wonderful picture of family. Basically, what I want you to take away from this series is that I want us to form a football team. No. Well, what we need to take away from this is that the way we follow Jesus means that we should love one another. Find out personal relationships. Paul encourages us and challenges us to keep on going. Be on your guard. Stand firm in the faith. Be courageous. Be strong. Do everything in love. It isn't easy to follow Jesus. It isn't easy to choose to do what he teaches. It isn't easy to choose hope in the face of despair. It isn't easy to choose belief in moments of doubt. It isn't easy to choose to be holy in times of temptation. It isn't easy. But it is worth it. Be on your guard and stand firm in the faith. Watch out for those things that will move you away from God. You know, the world around us, particularly our relationships with people, often push to move us away from God. Particularly people we're close to. It might be pressure to get drunk or to steal or to gossip or to be dismissive and bullying of others. It might be a more subtle temptation to make others the enemy and not to love them. 
to pile in on some other group. My friends, stand firm in the faith. We never turn our backs on the world. We never turn our backs on our friends or write them off. We commit to loving them by showing them the way of Christ of holy love. Choose to stand firm and you will find yourself becoming a light in the darkness for those who need it. I'll give you a trivial example of this. Heather, when she started the criminal bar, you have ever seen a more uh, iniquitous den of vipers than criminal barristers. There is something about the moral relativism or constantly arguing that people are innocent or guilty and just working out what you're going to say with three minutes to go for these people to make odd choices. I remember the TV show. Did we see Silk when it was on the TV a few years ago, Maxine Pink? At the time I was practicing law, people came up to me and said, what is the, uh, what uh, is Silk accurate or not? Yeah. I said, that, to be honest, it's pretty accurate. It's a pretty good portrayal. Um, urge you to go and check it out, particularly serious. One, there were two things that were wrong. First of all, you would never steal a living gown because everybody knows everybody else. You wouldn't get away with it. But there's only like two shops that deal with it. And then you've got to work three yards away from them. Why would you do that, right? Secondly, it's not true that people did cocaine upstairs in chambers, they used to do it downstairs in the toilet. Heather has no problems now working in prisons because she loves prisoners. What she couldn't have was other lawyers. My point is, (laughs) my point is, not to be uh, offensive about lawyers, I can say it because I love them dearly now. Uh, I guess I still have one. It's to tell this story, before we started at the bar, Heather and I decided that we wouldn't drink alcohol. I don't have a problem with people drinking alcohol. You should, if you do, that's fine as long as you're not getting drunk and abusing it. We decided that we wouldn't, and for a whole host of reasons. One of them was that it's much easier for other people not to drink if you don't drink, right? Yeah. So there used to be this massive culture at uh, Heather's chambers and indeed every chambers that you would go out with the people who would get drunk and all the rest of it. And Heather went out with her workmates and they said, Oh, what we get you? She said, Oh, we're just, just didn't. And then she was pushed and pushed and pushed. She said, No, no, I just want orange juice. Blow me down. It turned out that half the people in the group wanted orange juice. They didn't want to, I mean, which makes sense. You've got to go to court the next day. Why would you want to go and get ratted? Right? She stood firm, as a trivial example, she stood firm and blown me down, it turned out that people actually are attracted to the light of Jesus. But she didn't then stand up in the middle of the pub on the table and say, let me tell you, we're drinking orange juice today because of Jesus. <laughs> it was just slowly reversing the tide of pressure to live a different way. There was another one, no one used to take holidays. Taboo type of subject. You didn't take holidays if you were a trainee because uh, you might be thought not to be working hard enough and they wouldn't keep you on. Very competitive. So no one ever took holiday. So we talked about it. So she said, Well, if I'm not allowed to take holiday, I don't want to work here. So I said, Well, love, you know, I don't see it in Jesus. Doesn't matter if you don't get taken on. We'll take a holiday. We need holiday. Blow me down if not only did she then take holiday, but because she'd taken it, everyone else took it. They were been waiting to take it as well. And they all got kept on. All the trainees got kept on. It turned out this whole thing was a lie. The whole culture was rubbish. It took somebody who said, no, I believe that because of Jesus, I don't have to find my identity in my work. 
I'm willing to stand firm to show everybody else how to live. And again, she can stand up on the table in the pub and say, the reason we're all on holiday is because of Jesus. It was just slowly standing her ground on what she felt God had called her to do. And then when, and actually, several of her colleagues then did start going to Bible studies or coming to church. Because why wouldn't you? This girl has like set free half the, half the lawyers in her year. Of course you want to learn about Jesus. My friend, we are called to take risks for the kingdom of God, to share Christ with others, to choose to love those who are unlovely, to choose to make peace between enemies, to choose to resist selfishness and immorality, to take risks to speak about Jesus. This is my personal hero. This is Ricardo Kaka. That's not his full name, his full name is Brazilian, I can't say. Kaka, his name is, uh, in the West. He's the former Ballon d'Or winner, that means World Player of the Year, one of the best football players I've ever seen. Uh, he, after winning the Champions League, revealed his vest, I belong to Jesus, and then slowly other footballers started taking wearing his t shirts until so many of them were wearing them. Now, FIFA actually banned them <laughs> because you couldn't, have, you couldn't have a Brazil game where they won the, won the match without them taking off their t shirts and start evangelizing. Right, this one guy, so they banned them, right? not good for TV markets in the Muslim world. And uh, this one guy took a risk to share God's love with other people. I love that picture because it strikes me as something I would have been scared to do. But he was courageous. And I cannot tell you the number of young men who have been helped by those pictures. I cannot tell you. <coughs> Be courageous not because we would always avoid being hurt like some sort of contemporary superman. But because our God has overcome the world, there will be times when it's hard and rejected, but the power and the love and the grace of God are stronger than anything this world can tell us. You might be thinking this has gone on for long enough, and you're right. How should we apply? Number one, the best way to care for the poor and develop a culture of giving care for the poor is to give money away. Paul's words are wise. Be disciplined, be regular, be practical. If you have a pension that comes in once a month or a salary that comes in once a month, work out to whom you are going to give money, how much you can afford to give, and set up a direct debit so that it goes out immediately. That is the contemporary equivalent of setting aside money on the first day of the week. Don't wait until you see someone walking past the street, oh, you might be giving a pound or a pound. You do that. The way to really put care for the poor at the heart of your life is to make a regular, systematic giving. Give to support Christians, either through this church or other charities. And then look for opportunities to give elsewhere. Giving should be a way of life for us. And Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart is also. In the contemporary world, we talk about putting our money where our mouths are. Laboring the point because actually Jesus spent more time, more time talking about caring for the poor than anything else. Anything else. Build Christian relationships. Text one another. I'm pretty sure the mobile phones are from the devil, but given that they're here, use them. Text someone and say, How are you doing? 
Text someone and say, I was praying with you this morning and I love you. Text someone and say, look, I, I, I haven't seen you for a while, I'm concerned, can we meet for coffee? Text someone and say, I need help. Join life groups. Get a prayer list, we'll bring out a new prayer card soon. Pray systematically for people in the church and for others. Don't leave it to chance. I pray for people off the top of my head. I also pray, I try and pray for three people in the church every single day. Systematically. It doesn't matter whether I feel like it or not. I'm up really angry with you. I love to think to myself, I'm going to someone down who I've literally never in my life been angry with. Hello, I've never been angry with you, so I'm going to use you as an example. I'm up to think to myself, God, I don't cheese me off. Really cheese me off a lot last night, then her name comes up on the prayer card, and I think, oh, I've got to pray for Helen. That's the best person to pray for. Because as you pray for them, you start to love them. You involved in teaching children's church, pray for kids. Find them. Come to other events and support evenings and support evenings with other churches. We talk about Ashburnham next summer. Come to Ashburnham. Come and camp and stay in houses and uh, in a big uh, stately home and come to worship and to sessions and to football and to uh, craft and to stuff with other churches and other Christians. Be encouraged. There are a few things so challenging and inspiring like faith building is worshiping with people you've never met but finding that you share a wonderful connection with them. I have a friend who's a parish nurse and she goes all around the world doing dead air stuff. She has a kind of retirement when she feels exhausted. She goes flies all around the world being a nurse around the world. She's in her 70s or 80s now. Her son who doesn't go to church says, Mum, I'm so jealous. Everywhere you go in the world, you get off the plane and you've got family there. She just goes to the local church. Hi, I'm Noreen. I'm a nurse. I'm here to help. And now come in, Noreen. Can we give you lunch? Get together with others. And then finally, resolve to live differently. Ask God where in your life you need to stand firm and be courageous and bold. Then pray for the strength of courage. We're going to stop now. As we close and reflect and respond to God, all you know is the final thing. Paul's last words in this letter are grace and they are love. If you take nothing else away, this entire year of sermons. First of all, don't tell me, I'll make you cry. Take grace and love. Everything we do, are, and can be is built by the grace of God. He loves every single one of us. My friends, God is for you. He's on your side and he wants you to be on his. My brothers and sisters, if we are so loved by God, should we not also love us? Let's be quiet. Father, we want to pray, Lord, that you would speak with each one of us. You might be speaking this year in loads of different ways, but we pray, Lord, that you would speak for us the one way, the one way that you are speaking to us. And help us to know how to respond to you. I just pray that those who need to hear words of consolation will know you. Those who need to know words of challenge will be challenged to stand. Those of us who need to stop something in our lives that's unhealthy and unhelpful, that you'd help us to stop. That you would give us love for you and for us. Amen.
come Holy Spirit. I'm just going to leave some quiet and then we're going to sing a final song.